before you get that cup of coffee, <laughs> what kind of person do you want to be? Yeah, I mean, we need to be asking ourselves these critical questions be- because it directly relates to how we live our life, right? So if I can figure out the type of human I want to be, then I can live my politics with integrity. You are listening to Nashville Demystified, where I, Alex Steed, get to know this city better by talking with folks who live, work, agitate, and make art here. Today, we're talking with Robin Henderson Espinoza. Robin lives here in Nashville and is a queer, non-binary Latinx poet and a doctor of theology. Robin is also the author of a book called Activist Theology, which is a collection of stories about how they found their way as an activist, a theologian, and a person living in this weird and unstable time. I can't say enough good things about Robin in the conversation that you are about to hear outside of the fact that I'm stoked to be sharing it with you. It will change your perspective for the better. And if your perspective has already changed uh, for the better or has been recently, it will just make you stoked to be a living thinking person um, who, you know, like the rest of us has to figure it all out. First though, we'll be talking with Tristan Scroggins, Tristan is a mandolinist and all-around bluegrass wizard. He is a columnist for No Depression, where he writes about, among other things, how strange it is to live life on the road as a traveling musician. Um, You know, if you are a traveling musician or you are involved with a traveling musician or you just know them, you know that uh, shit gets weird out there. (laughs) Tristan's written about that. Nashville Demystified is a production of Knack Factory. Uh, Knack Factory is a video content production company with offices here in the city. And we own this town, a collection of podcasts made by Nashvillians. One of my favorites is My Fantasy Funeral, a show in which folks are interviewed about, you guessed it, their fantasy funeral. I realize you didn't ask, but I want the following songs played at my funeral. Scenes from a funeral from of Montreal. It's from their older stuff, their cute, weird, older stuff. And as they lower me into the ground, please play the misfits where eagles dare. I think, I don't know. I think it's important to have Glenn Danzig (laughs) telling you he ain't no goddamn son of a bitch while you watch my boxed body uh, go into the ground. Speaking of dying, I went to the Spring Hill Cemetery this weekend. It piqued my interest because in David Berman's blog, which I spoke to quite a bit last week, he posted a map of celebrity graves in among the dozen or so cemeteries, uh, Spring Hill, which is where John Hartford and Jimmy Martin and Roy Acuff and plenty of other giants in the country and bluegrass music industry are buried, uh, was circled. Uh, It was the only one that was circled. And... So I just wanted to, you know, check it out and spend some time there. I drive by it quite a bit when I go into Madison. Um, so I, I I walked around for quite a bit of time and I Googled the names of folks that I didn't recognize to find out more about them. If you Google Spring Hill, by the way, the autofill populates Spring Hill Cemetery Keith Whitley, which I imagine is the cause, uh, excuse me, is the result of the fact that there is a Keith Whitley exhibit at the Country Music Hall of Fame. There is, I should note, if you, you know, actually fill that out and look at Spring Hill Cemetery Keith Whitley, there's a very shaky video posted on YouTube of of Whitley's funeral um, and some some local news coverage that followed. It very much feels like it's from the late 80s. Um, Lots of hair, lots of big hair. Uh, Lots of folks telling stories about how... um, you really don't have to live like Hank Williams to be a good country star. And unfortunately, uh, uh, Keith Whitley learned the hard way. I'm going to get right into it. I had a long thing about the different people I came across while walking through Spring Hill, but I've delved into death enough in the past week and a half, so I'll save it for another time. Three quick notes before I get into the episode, though. One, I noticed that on her grave, Louise Scruggs' middle name is certain. Uh, It turns out that that's her maiden name, which became her middle name when she married Earl. Such a great fucking name. (laughs) It's so good. Louise Certain Scruggs. Uh, Sent me down a Louise Certain Scruggs rabbit hole. And did you know that Louise, Ms. Scruggs, Ms. Certain Scruggs, 
Uh, or Mrs. Scruggs, Mrs. Certain Scruggs. Did you know that she was the first manager in country music and was very likely the first manager in music, uh, popular music, I imagine, who was a woman? It's interesting that country is having such a hard time honoring women uh, when that is, uh, that is a fact. That is a fact that Louise Scruggs was the first country music manager. And she was also, as a result, the first country music manager who was a woman. Second, I wanted to give a shout out to the butcher and the bee, which is not paying me to say anything nice about them. Um, although I'm not above such things, uh, but I'm happy to say nice things about them because every time I have gone in recent memory, um, I've had a delightful time. I've had good cocktails. I've had really good food. I've been treated really well by their staff. Um, someone pointed out to me recently that the only time I talk about dining in Nashville, I have something negative to say. So I wanted to counter that with something positive and this is it. I love that place. Same goes for Mickey's, which is probably my favorite bar on the planet. Um, Inglewood lounge, of course, that's an, of course, uh, uh, it's one of the best And you know what, for what is probably effectively a tourist trap. I mean, it, it's just by way of its location, a tourist trap. But I'll tell you, you should not ever be above going to the Sun Diner because uh, uh, it's good. You're treated well. And let me tell you, the banana pudding is fucking to die for. To die for. I would, I'll say right now, I will fist fight you. I will fight you with my fists if you have something negative to say about the Sun Diner's banana pudding. It's nuts. It's nuts. It's I, I don't know if this is made up, but it is supposedly made locally by someone who makes really good banana pudding. <laughs> they make quite a bit of it, and you can eat it right there at the Sun Diner. The other thing I like about the Sun Diner is, again, I'm not paid to say any of this. This is just a person who happens to have been to these places. It's not precious by any means. It's not trying to be more than it is, which is more that can be said uh, uh, for a number of restaurants in the area. It's not not trying to be more than it is. It is exactly what it pretends, I mean, or pretends to be. And I really like that because of the way the bar is set up, you have to sit sort of with strangers and engage other people. I have never gone and not ended up engaging other people who are usually from other places, not always, um, um, and just gotten to know people accordingly. It's, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's interesting, like a good time. And by the way, in my script, it says nothing about the Sun Diner. I have no idea how I ended up in this place. But go and have the banana pudding. Tell them that I sent you, even though they will have no idea who I am. Third, or three, I'm not quite sure what the format of this list is. Three. Along with Knack Factory, we, uh, Nashville Demystified, are proud sponsors of Honky Tonk Padonkadonk, which is one of the best zines I've come across in my life. It's published right here in Nashville. I interviewed its parents, Jack and Sabelle, in a previous episode. I fell in love with their whole scene immediately thereafter. Actually, probably on the spot. And then I've gone to their events and hung with them a bit. And uh, uh, I just really like what they're doing. I really love every article they publish. I just adore them. And I, if I had more money, I would give it to them. You can find issues. It's free at Mickey's speak of the devil Ingle, Inglewood lounge. Again, another devil or anywhere else you would imagine you'd find a zine. I think Grimey's, uh, there's probably some there, you know, just think like if I were going to go get a zine, where would I get it? And that's probably where you'll find honky tonk, padonka tonk. And before we get to Tristan, I want to encourage you to like us, follow us, subscribe, and do all that stuff. It really, 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 really does help us out. Okay, so I talked with Tristan Scroggins, who, since this conversation, I've hung with a bit more. Uh, and he is a wonderful guy and a total badass in the mandolin department. I, I can't say that with authority. I do not have a discerning ear for the stringed instruments of bluegrass music, but I know people who are, and they tell me that this is the case. He is also, as I mentioned above, a columnist for No Depression Magazine, where he writes about his exploits on the road. It's a lot of fun. It's weird, and it's dark, and it's interesting. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, it's 
great. Tristan's voice is good on uh, uh, in any arena that you can get it. We talk about a lot of things here. We talk a lot about being new to Nashville. We talk about, um, you know, we just talk about being here in this here lovely music city, USA. Uh, Tristan's album, Fancy Boy, is available where albums are typically available. Um, you can find a lot of information on his uh, internet site, his website. Just Google Tristan Scroggins, you'll find him. Without further ado, Tristan Scroggins. I moved here the first of, I guess it was 2018. So it's been about a year and a half, mm. not particularly long. Yeah. Um, I moved, um, well, really because um, the the woman I was dating broke up with me and I was uh, spiraling a little bit. <laughs> and um, I had, at that point in time, I was on the road about 300 days a year. I was um, touring full time in a bluegrass band with my dad. And my uh, self-care plan was to just never be home. <laughs> if I felt like if I was never home, then I wouldn't ever feel homesick, which kind of was true, but uh, that also required a lot of like drinking and drinking coffee all the time and stuff. So um, after that happened, or after that relationship ended, I kind of had to rethink what was important to me because uh, that relationship was a long-distance relationship. She lived in Europe, and I was traveling all the time, so I actually saw her pretty regularly. But um, I kind of started to think that I might want to be in one place for a long time. And I started to think about places where I could go um, that I'd like to be, and it was either Boston or Nashville. Not, not, um, it's not a coincidence that those are both like big bluegrass music places, but that's just because all my friends are, they play bluegrass music. And so I was either going to move to Boston and... Um, hang out with the music people there. Would you have moved into the compound? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I would have lived on the dirty side. They don't like to call it the dirty side, but it's yeah. the dirty side. <laughs> they don't, they, uh, for people who don't know, there's a, house in, <laughs> there's a house in Boston that's notorious for housing, or in Brighton for housing a, a good deal of musicians. So a lot of people you would probably know of if you listen to this podcast, but yeah. you're going to live on the dirty side of the house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The side that well, you've had a lot of people from that house on this show, I guess. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> I I was I was talking to my girlfriend now about um, about when I was visiting there once, and she said, "Oh, you're on the dirty side." And somebody overheard, and they got offended, and then proceeded to tell a story about how they uh, were dreaming about uh, cuddling with their dog, and they woke up and there was a rat on their chest. <laughs> so and they took offense. Yeah. <laughs> So every, I mean, it seems okay. So every every story I've heard so far about, in particular, a musician coming to mm -hmm. Nashville, with the exception of Ellie Buckland's, um, has started or ended with a breakup, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like a breakup that was sort of maybe happening or in process of happening or inevitable, um, or um, a new relationship ended up bringing mm -hmm. bringing someone here. Um, w w I guess. I mean, I guess that's the start and end to many good stories anyway. But what, why here? Well, I ended up picking here over Boston because I was also, I'd already started doing some writing and um, research. And there's a lot more resources for that, for one thing. There's the Center for Popular Music down in Murfreesboro that they're always really generous with their time and resources for when I'm studying for an article Um and the Country Music Hall of Fame and their archive. And there's just there's a lot more opportunities here. I, I would have had fun in Boston, but I would have just kind of been hanging out in the Brighton house, whereas here I can kind of actually um, do some other stuff. Uh, and since I did end up quitting the band I was in eventually, um, it was better to be here, I feel like, because I have a lot more opportunities to do other things. But I do think that Nashville is kind of like the acoustic musicians sort of well Nashville or Austin maybe the acoustic musicians equivalent of like dropping everything and moving to New York or yeah. LA or something and I feel like people usually do that sort of thing when they're 
life sort of falls apart, <laughs> like you have a breakup or something. Yeah. And what did you find when you were here? I mean, how have you found how have you found Nashville versus what you what maybe what you expected? Uh, I'm not sure if it's a lot different than I expected, but from when I started visiting here, because when I was traveling all the time, I, I was visiting here pretty often, um, both here and uh, Boston and just wherever. I just really wasn't going home. But when I was would come here, I felt more excited than I felt in other places. Um, and I felt a feeling like, you know, I remember going to an exhibit on um, women in the Renaissance, like painters and the women, female painters in the Renaissance, and they, they had lots of like entries from their journals about going to Paris and being like, "This is the center of everything. This, there's an energy here that feels magnetic." And uh, and I read one of Patti Smith's books where she talks about New York that way. And I'd been to both Paris and New York, and I like them, but um, I didn't feel that way there. But I felt that way here. Mm. It really has, you know, so much history and so much complex music history. And it's it's really the nexus of everything that I've dedicated my life to. So there's this uncanny sense of home and belonging just because of that. On top of all the great people that live here who I'm really good friends with, it's really made this feel more like home in a little more than a year than... Uh, anywhere I've ever lived, really. Not to knock anywhere. I've lived in lots of great places, but this feels a lot different. Yeah. I, I've said this before on a previous episode, so I'm sorry to anyone who has to hear it again, but the um, when I came down here to look for apartments um, in January of this year, mm-hmm. I I was having dinner with... Um, was having dinner and, and Paul Cowart was around and he had he was talking about, about John Hartford mm-hmm. and he was, like, looking and, like... Often, I think Paul Coward is like a fascinating guy and a difficult guy to read sometimes. And mm-hmm. but like he looked at this this record cover so reverently and was just like, for whatever it's worth, all these people were right here. Mm-hmm. Like all these people to whom like we dedicate what our musical interest is and lineages were like physically here, and mm-hmm. like that just like goes a long way. And I think I like sort of like you say with the connection with the with where it is happening. Um, it's something I didn't appreciate until I was here. And I feel like every day I'm like, oh, like <laughs> this thing that is significant to my life in one way or another happened physically in this place. Yeah. How does, I mean, how does that affect you as a musician? Well, the environment of, of being around so many good musicians and not even just good musicians, but people who are extremely passionate and um, genuine about loving music has re- really made me a better musician. I mean, it's made me want to practice more and want to learn more about where a lot of that history came from because, you know, I grew up in New Mexico and then Colorado playing bluegrass. So there's 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 a long history of bluegrass in both those places, but, um, you know, we're on the Cumberland River. There's, you know, there's... If, if you drive east from here, you'll pass... Um, dozens of places that are named after extremely popular bluegrass songs Mm -hmm. and like it's the history is is very connected to this place and it's made me appreciate that more which for playing traditional music goes a pretty long way it's having that having a desire to connect with that foundation makes anything that i play of my own stronger i feel like yeah i I mean i imagine so i feel like the being pushed like surely just by being in a place where you're surrounded by is huge. Do you have a, do you have a favorite, the thing that I'm coming to really appreciate is, um, um, just sort of stories that you hear about, about the, the origins and people that you're into. So I talked to, I talked to, um, Mac Holmes, uh, in an earlier episode and he talked about the time, the first time that Bill Monroe heard, um, heard new grass from <laughs> Sam Bush and, uh, um, and Bill Monroe said, you know, what do you call that? And Sam Bush said, that's, you know, it's new grass, Bill. And he said, I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any, do you have any of those tales that you're, uh, you've been fascinated by? You do a lot of research in this room. Yeah. I did a lot of research on Bill Monroe too. And it's interesting. The stories about Bill are it's funny for there to be people like Bill who are 
you know, relatively modern. He only died like 20 years ago, mm-hmm. no, 25 years ago. Um, but he he's a legend to the point where people really take those stories and make them a lot more <laughs> sure. intense. Uh, like the one about a similar story like that where um, they were talking about new grass and he got frustrated and said that ain't no part of nothing, which is now on a variety of merchandise you can purchase. Um, I mean, that was mostly Kenny Baker, like trying to rile um, him up and him saying that. And now it's used as a way to kind of show him as this like curmudgeonly traditionalist, which is both true and not true. It's um, there's lots of, I mean, there's tons of great Bill Monroe stories and I do know lots of stories that I probably wouldn't tell on a podcast, but if <laughs> you want to find me drinking seltzer in a bar, I'll tell you. But um, I like, well, I've actually been doing a lot of stuff related to John Hartford, which has been really interesting and um, finding out about his contributions to the town have been really cool. Like his, he was largely if not entirely responsible for the General Jackson, which is the steamboat they have at Opry, Opry Land. Um, he um, rode that up from New Orleans with with the pilot, and it was a big part of having that ship come to Nashville. And there's a light, there's a navigation light on the river named after him hmm. that they put because he was on the river and realized that it'd be good to put a light there and told them and they named it after him, which they don't really name very many of them, and usually not after people who are alive. So that was cool. I, I get this, the idea of what you were saying about having all these people here, and I think there's lots of really great stories, but I also really enjoy the, like, even more fully mundane parts of it, like the fact that, like, you know, Jerry Douglas goes to the YMCA near my house and stuff <laughs> is pretty cool. I, I like to know about well, to know that those people are just regular people and not just these like unattainable sort of visions. Um, They're posting in their neighborhood uh, uh, their neighborhood closed Facebook group about how many fireworks are going off in the background. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, I do like the mundane. I do like that that like it, that these are these are people and they're not unattainable giants. Yeah. They just live in their lives. Um, I I interviewed um, this fellow who I can't, whose name I can't remember at the moment. But he, I was interviewing him because he was he recorded I think the only bluegrass album ever made in Mexico uh, in the seventies, and um, he's. He lives in San Antonio, and he but he lived here for a while with Dave Cinco, who's a great sound engineer. He does sound for the Punch Brothers and um, Chris Thiele and does all the recording, and he's he's incredible. But they moved here together, um, and when Dave was still building mandolins, they were called Unicorn Mandolins, mm. um, and they opened a shop, and um, shop didn't end up working out, and Dave stayed. The other guy whose name I feel guilty to not remember left. But he told me a lot of interesting stories about just hanging out with Sam Bush or like Peter Owen was getting more and more into like Tex-Mex and Spanish music. And so he would write songs and go over to his house and um, have this guy um, translate some of the lyrics into Spanish because Peter Owen didn't know how to speak Spanish at the yeah. time. So Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's, it's, yeah, the proximity is fascinating. The, I mean, I was at, I was at a... Have you been to this really? It's a, it's like, I don't even think it's arguable. It's like an arguably bad Italian restaurant called Smeraldo's on, um, it's like near, I think it's, it's in Madison proper on Gallatin. Oh, sure. No. And it's like in a, it's like in a hole. Like, I mean, it's, and, uh, I'm saying it's bad in that, in this like new sort of like quote unquote, like new food standard we have now. Like it's actually probably like quite good. I believe you that cooked it, food. You I know? believe you that it's bad. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, mean, I don't know if Mr. Smeraldo is listening, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> he, like I was there the other day and it's like, there were no people in the, there were just like no one in the restaurant mm-hmm. and it's like a long dirty bar and mm-hmm. it's, and then the, um, there's two other people there and like one was just like the manager for Mo. And I was like, I was like, this is like. It's really, 
the egalitarian nature of like being in proximity to people who are like actually involved in this business is so much different from say like Los Angeles mm-hmm. where people there if there is a mundane existence there's like very much a separation from these people unless you're in like Los Feliz or something like that yeah and like here it's just sort of you're you're constantly in proximity to to that and I imagine that that from a perspective of someone who's like always making something that is encouraging yeah I think I think it's good and bad I think people forget how small Nashville is I mean there's not there's few I forget how many but there's fewer than a million people that live here it's pretty small city um and so you kind of do eventually just see everybody um (laughs) and I think for a lot of people that's really exciting because I mean it is exciting to like go eat um you know go eat somewhere and see uh whoever I don't know I'm trying to think of famous people (laughs) but um or like I love that the contra dance here in town the band is always completely off the chain talented <laughs> not you know like a contraband's usually pretty good but the last time i went paul cower was playing fiddle and john mylander was playing mandolin mm-hmm. and um i'm playing it this week and molly tuttle's playing guitar and alan o'brien is playing banjo and it's like there's not a lot of places where you would have like this like contra dance in a church it happens every <laughs> friday have this consistently amazing sort of lineup of people then I think for a lot of people that move here, they get like, you know, that's kind of why they're moving is to be in the proximity. And I had a really, um, I was really lucky and kind of cheated because I had been touring for so long and been a kind of a public, you know, public figure in the way that a musician sort of has to be. Um, that people kind of knew who I was and I had a lot of friends here who had been here for a long time. And so when I moved, I kind of... I didn't do a lot of like standing around waiting for somebody to sure. notice me. I just kind of uh, had people introduce me, which I feel very fortunate for. Yeah, but I mean, that's you worked for. I mean, there, there was yeah. work there. I, I'm curious about what what people do when they just show up. Like, honestly, I don't know what the hope is. Yeah, um, I know some people who have done it, and it's always just the idea just seems so wild to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, but. I think David Benedict did that when mm. he um, came to town originally. He moved here and he didn't have a job. I met him like right when he moved to town. He came to Rocky Grass um, in Colorado and I met him. And he had just moved to town. He didn't have a job. He didn't know what he was going to do. And he was living in this weird apartment behind the Dairy King. <laughs> um, but he ended up you know, playing around town and developing that Mandolin Mondays series, which is right. wildly popular, um, before eventually moving to Boston. But um, he made it work. Of course, he is an extremely talented mandolin yeah. player, so that helps. Matt Combs came in the late 90s, and the only thing he knew was the Station Inn, so he drove to the Station Inn yeah. and then just, like, asked around about what to do or where to go. Well, the older times of, <laughs> I mean, that, there's lots of stories that I just seem so, like, of people showing up at, somebody's door and just saying like can you teach me how to play the fiddle and yeah. like them doing it <laughs> um, but it's uh, you know I, I kind of I didn't come here looking for work was the other thing that I feel lucky about because I, I was still playing in that band when I came here and it was a pretty steady job but um, as part of coming here I also started going to therapy like because I wanted a more stable grounding and I got that from the community and having that I was able to um, start going to therapy and very quickly realize that I should probably not be touring very much. I'm a a huge advocate to everyone who is on the fence (laughs) to go to therapy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, but now I'm doing pretty good. So nice. Do you, are you going to stay here? Do you think for a while? Oh yeah. Yeah. Why, Why is that? I don't know where else I would go. I mean, if I was, there's not really anywhere else I'd rather be for one thing. And it's interesting when I talk to people who want to be in other places, because there's other places that I, I mean, I love the Bay Area. I'm there all the time and I love the weather and the food and the people and the stuff. And like, it's all very cool. And there's lots of bluegrass, but it's not like here, like here I can turn on the radio and hear the Opry, which has been broadcasting consistently for 93 years. Sure. <laughs> like, and 
there's still a very tangible connection to that history and I, there's so much more that I can do here that I even though I'm constantly just sticky from the humidity <laughs> and people I am sure I'm going to die in a car crash here <laughs> and I have resorted to making my own salsa um I still the music part means so much more to me than any of the other stuff I can make everything else work but there's not another place that I know of that has this sort of feeling for me yes well thank you so much for coming on I appreciate it yeah thanks for having me thank you so much Tristan Next, as I said up top, we talk with Robin Hernandez Espinoza. I used a lot of words at the beginning of this episode to describe Robin. And, you know, I just, I don't know what to say that will add to those words outside of the fact that Robin has big, beautiful thoughts. They are moving and revolutionary in a lot of ways. And I'm grateful they shared those thoughts here. And once you hear Robin, you will almost definitely want to grab Robin's book, activist theology the second it's available there's a release event happening in september which you can find out about uh on our website nationaldemystified.com uh our social media etc we'll share all that information so that you can go and receive the inspiration of the book in real time for your enjoyment for your brain for your heart here's a conversation with robin hernandez espinoza I'm a trans queer activist, a Latinx scholar, and a public theologian. Cool. <laughs> let's let's spend a while unwrapping all that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So okay, how? Let's start by just like by 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 who you are and where we are. Yeah. So I'm Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa. We're in Nashville, Tennessee, and I moved here after the 2016 election. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on faculty in Berkeley, California. Yeah. And teaching ethics. And after the election of 45, I said, I need to move home to the South. Hmm. Hmm. Why? Why? You know, I really believe, and I say this as often as I can, I believe the South has the greatest political potential for change, Hmm. for social change. And I wanted to root myself. So I'm originally from Texas. My mother's family had migrated from Mexico. They settled in Texas. I left Texas when I was 26 to go to grad school and then to do the PhD and then move to California because I thought it'd be like queer utopia and I would meet all these avant-garde people and be sitting in cafes drinking coffee or bourbon. And then I realized like, oh my God, these are not my people and I need to find my people. And then with the political transition of 2016, I thought I need to move home to the South. Mm. I need to recover my roots and I need to recover the integrity of my roots. And so I moved home to Nashville which some people would say Texas is not the South because it's its own territory. Yeah. But sort of the general area, I moved back home to the general area of the South. And I think the reason is is because I believe that the people here have a history, um, not just generational history, but an embodied history of what has taken place on this land mm-hmm. and this real struggle of what it means to um, – to fight for freedom. And I wanted to be a part of that history making, yeah. especially after the election of 45. You know, I saw, I saw, I can't, I unfortunately can't remember the name of it. I, uh, last night at the Belcourt, I saw a documentary by Les Blank on, um, on Chicano singers uh-huh. and, and it took, it was shot in, in 74 or 75. Uh-huh. And so a lot of the singers had, were, were, um, you know, they had roots going back to their parents, going back to like the like 1880s through right. the 1920s. And I was and they, they talk a lot about about sort of uh, Mexican heritage, but then also heritage of living in living in Texas. Right. Sort of straddling this, that line. 
And I was taken by that movie coming out 45 years ago and it being like it just could have come out yesterday. Oh, yeah. It could have come out. I mean, even right down to like the labor songs, which have like pretty left, not even pretty left wing. I mean, they're very left wing uh, uh, leanings, Mm -hmm. acknowledgments of um, uh, misogyny and songs by women and then uh, acknowledgments that that. Uh, the labor was just ultimately, you know, going to sort of make rich people richer. Right. So I was like, oh, this is like blink of an eye, 45 years goes by, same sort of fertile ground for change. Well, I feel like, so yes, that is true. I also feel like in your interview with Betsy Phillips where you talked about, um, oh, now you can just buy an automatic rifle at Walmart Mm. where you could used to buy dynamite at True Value. I mean, you see a repetition Mm -hmm. in history, um, And so much of what happened during the struggle of the farm workers movement, during when the border crossed Mexicans and during the Guadalupe de Hidalgo Treaty, so much of that is just repeating Mm -hmm. um, in different ways. And the struggle remains. Right. right? So like everything, so much of the organizing back then, uh, 45 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, applies to today. And I think you see that in in some of your other interviews that you've done Mm -hmm. in talking about history and the the ways that things bubble up. Yeah, it's 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 wild. I, I had a choice. I was faced with the choice of going, as I've said to other other people, I wanted to move to Los Angeles from Maine. And I wanted to move to Los Angeles for a couple of years. And I wanted to move there because I thought very similar to what you were thinking yeah. with regard to like, I'm, you know, I'm in this place. It's going to have all my people. It's right. Gonna like, and then finally I was like, did I just decide Los Angeles was the answer to a question I never asked myself? Right. And I drove around everywhere um, last year to cities I thought I might be interested in. And when I came to Nashville, I was like, oh, my God, is Nashville? Yeah. <laughs> is Nashville the place? Yeah. No, and not for any of the quote unquote like it city reasons. Actually, a lot of those I have an aversion to like the the things I'm much more interested in are that are a lot of what you're talking about. It feels like there's so much potential yeah. here for things that are bigger than just, you know, tall skinnies and, and right. $18 cocktails. Right. But those cocktails are good. They're so good. My favorite bar is Attaboy. Have oh, you been to Attaboy? Yes, yes, yes. yes it's yes, the only yes. place I go for cocktails. Yeah, it's so good. And yeah. you go and you're like, I want something inspired by a, a Disney float. And they're yes. just like, here you go. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. I know but, exactly what you yeah, are. Yeah. They're like, what are you feeling? I'm like, bourbon, boozy. I know the perfect drink. Okay, girl. Yeah. Okay. It's wonderful. And they treat me so well there. Oh, gosh. Like, yeah, as a absolutely. trans person yeah. in the South, yeah. as a non-binary person, as a queer person, I go there and they treat me really well. Totally. And, it's, and there's something about – I know that's not everyone's experience. Let me say that. Mm-hmm. But as a non-binary transgender person – I can go places and I'm treated well here. Yeah, yeah. And that's I think that's important. Right, totally. Right? Well, I think that especially if you're going to do what they're doing, which is emulating in a legal spot. Yep. Like, illegal spots are along where people who were not welcome other places right. were, it was the only place they were able to go. Right. So I think a lo- the way a lot of people fuck up by having a, a speakeasy. Yep is it feels too um, too pretentious to exist there. Right. And they nail it because they if do. you're going to do a speakeasy, you should do it in a way where anyone who's who's on any sort of border or fringe yep. <laughs> feels welcome. Right. Because that's what right. the history yeah. of the speakeasy yeah. is. Well, and I, I feel like so much of what Nashville is doing, I mean, we could talk about gentrification, we could talk about class warfare and whatnot, which is very present here. Um and we're talking about labor issues, but the the thing that I appreciate about Nashville is there are I feel like there are some attempts at border crossing in the neighborhoods, mm-hmm. um, and I feel like if we can if we can sort of dismantle gentrification and the ways in which neoliberal capitalism is causing such an extreme housing crisis. Mm-hmm then maybe we can actually build the type of community that we need so that we can all flourish. And in that sense, there is some border crossings that are happening. Yeah. You know, the um, refugee communities are flourishing in many respects, um, though 
I, I think that we need to defund ICE. Mm-hmm. I think we need to defund the police. I mean, I'm a bit of a radical theologian mm-hmm. when 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 I talk about these things, largely because I don't believe that um, we need to pay allegiance to the state. Right. And and we've created such um, an an environment of governance that has swallowed community up. Mm-hmm with no chance to be community. And so you look at the the under-home population and the ways in which the city has no plan mm-hmm. to to fight f- for those who are under-homed. You have contractors who, you know, you can, I drove over here for, from my house in Midtown and, you know, I can count seven or eight cranes, mm-hmm. right? So the, the, the influx of building is perpetuating, um, a type of class warfare and gentrification. But if we can figure out how to actually build community in this city, I think it's what Nashville has historically done well is be community for lots of different yeah. people. Can I, and you seem to embody that mission more than most people that I've, I've thought of talking with. And the, the reason is, um, at the beginning, at the beginning, you said th- three qualifiers, right? Yeah. Your 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 trans queer non-binary um, uh, activist, li- activist, a Latinx scholar, right, and, and then a the, public theologian, right? Okay, so here we go. Yeah, um, I'm ready. Normally, the protocol, especially like from especially from like '90s back, yep, was you find an identity, and then you adhere to that identity in a super hard way, and usually the way. That you fortify that identity is through exclusion of all other identities. Right. And you, <laughs> by way of the I call bullshit on that. Right. Totally. Yeah. You 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 find find a place, and usually that happens because by way of an adoption of an identity, you see all the places you feel like you're not welcome, mm-hmm. and 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 you know double down to double down and saying like I'm going to occupy this identity and actually probably pretty radically exclude all these right. other things. You are. Straddling some lines, over occupying some lines. Right. Not over occupying. That sounds like it's punitive, but you're you're embracing the overlap on those. I things. mean, I think straddling the borderlands would be a good right. metaphor, yeah. right? Um, I'm a borderland person. I'm a mixed race Latinx. Mm-hmm. My family has crossed borders to survive. My brown mother, who you know is a Carmely Brown hue and i talk about this in the book you know she faces racism to this day i have the melanin of my white father and so i'm white i'm a white passing latinx so yes i do embrace the borderlands of identity um and i think being non-binary and being both an activist and a theologian and a scholar um it requires me to straddle these hybrid spaces Um, and embrace the borderlands in an embodied way, right? Mm. Like it's not just theory. I'm living this. And that I think that's different than some the the feminist movement in the eighties who, you know, were were hell bent on identifying as feminists. Yes, I think we should all be feminists, and we should also recognize that feminism largely means white. So what kind of feminism, right? right. Like, do we mean black feminism? Do we mean woman of color feminism? So, yes, I straddle, the, I straddle borders. I embrace multiple and conflicting identities. Uh, but I do that because it's about not only my survival but my flourishing. Right. Well, and I feel like it's the only real way to occupy the 21st century. Right. I feel like in so many ways, I feel like we just haven't entered the 21st century yet. Like we've we've all entered it. We've moved into right. it. Chronologically, we're there. Precisely. Right. And then and maybe it's the same way that it's like I don't think of I don't think of like before 1930 as the as the as the 20th century. Yeah. Right? It just seems like it's from a different era. It seems like it's a leftover from yeah. the, from the 1800s. Right. But I feel like it's like we're all in here and we're like really awkward about how to occupy it. Yep. There's There are people who are really good at occupying it in spite of everything. Mm-hmm. And then there's everyone else who's freaking the fuck out. Yeah. And we're like, shit is not like how it was right. before. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it makes me very uncomfortable. Right, right. Know? Well, and I, I think, you know, when, when you – when you say it in that way, it what it brings to mind is the criticism of millennials who mm. they're – and I, I imagine you're a Gen Xer. I just, I'm this – I'm the eldest – Qualifying millennial, okay. which makes me feel very much like okay. I'm a Gen X. <laughs> so I'm so I'm a Gen Xer. Um, I was born in the in the mid to late seventies, mm-hmm. 
And what I hear most is the criticism about millennials. Mm. We don't know how to embrace the younger generation, and we don't know how to embrace those who are aging. Right. And that creates such a conflict of community. Mm-hmm. And so if we can figure it like it's like if we can figure out gentrification, if we can figure out the underhome, if we can figure out how to be with one another in community, we might be able to survive ourselves. Right. But I don't think we know what kind of humans we want to be. Yeah. What kind of human do you want to be? Man, I want to be generous mm-hmm. and compassionate and loving. Um, I want to be revolutionary in my thinking. But I also want to be revolutionary in my embodiment. Mm-hmm. Um I want to not judge. I I want to not um, embody implicit bias. And I want to um, not swim in the the sea of white supremacy. Yeah. I mean, that's good. So you've thought about this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But leaving with the question, how should a person be, was so big for me is I was like, oh, it's not like, what do you want to do? It's like, how should you be? You know, that's the most important, that became like the most important foundational question for me. It reminds me of a question that I began asking myself four years ago when I finished my PhD and I moved to California. And remember, I thought it would be like this (laughs) queer utopia and I'd be sitting in avant-garde cafes, drinking coffee (laughs) and listening to like, you know, electronic music and like gazing at art on the wall. And that was not my experience. Um, And it was a very lonely time. And I began to ask myself this question, who am I and how do I know? Mm. And I began journaling about this every day. And I would write, who am I and how do I know? And every day I would just tackle this question. Mm -hmm. And it brought me to the cusp of the question, well, what kind of humans do we want to be? Mm. And that question, who am I and how do I know, is like the single most truth-telling question that I could have asked myself. Mm-hmm. And that was really the question that that I think helped create conditions for me to move home to the South so that I could recover the kind of humanity that I want to have right. so that I could help you know, participate in a new vision for humanity. Yeah, and, and so how did... Uh, I mean, you came to that question relatively recently, mm-hmm. although it sounds like that question has been in you um, yeah, I mean, for a long time. You know, graduate school does a number on people. <laughs> um, seven years of my PhD, I'll never get back, right? Mm-hmm. Those are lo- gone. And I feel like reading all the things that I read and sort of sitting with all the literature, it made me wonder, what the fuck am I doing? Mm. Mm-hmm. which is p- part of why I returned to storytelling. Yeah. And I use philosophy and theory to tell stories, um, but I do it through translation mm-hmm. and of translating concepts into story. Um, and when I think about who am I and how do I know, it's actually a modified question that Thomas Aquinas asked. Mm-hmm. Thomas Aquinas asked, who is God and how do we know? Mm-hmm. I'm not concerned with whether there is a God or, or whatnot. I'm, I'm not that kind of theologian. Um, but what, I'm, what I care about are our social practices, how we are in the world. And so the question of who am I and how do I know is directly related to how I live. Mm-hmm. And I tell people all the time, I don't care what you believe. I care about your politics. How are you living? Mm-hmm. Where do you buy your coffee? Where do you buy your groceries? Where do you buy your gas? I just read yesterday that Shell employees – had to go to a Trump rally to be paid and that they were instructed not to protest. Historically, I bought my gas from Shell because Shell has some of the better practices when it comes to gasoline. And so now I'm at this this sort of fork in the road of like, well, where do I buy my gas? Because there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, right? This this goes at the heart of this question, who am I and how do I know? The... The and your one of your ways of man, of like figuring out the manifestations of those things is through theology. Yes. Right. Yes. I so I grew up. Um, I grew up very actively going to church. Interested of like a mainline like uh, uh, New England, uh-huh. n- New England church, a congregational a, church. Yeah, con- exactly, yeah. exactly. With a whole bunch of white people. They, totally, oh my god! Just <laughs> yeah. not even just a whole bunch of white people. Just one hundred percent white people. Yeah. Um, um, which it was, by the way, reminded me of reminded of yesterday when I went to this film again about Chicago music, and there were like two people in the audience who do that thing <laughs> where they insist on clapping, right. like not even just clapping at the movie, but clapping through the 
the song, oh, you right, know, yeah. and it's like just slightly offbeat, right. and it's the whole way through, and it reminds me of just being in church, right. you know, <laughs> because white people don't have rhythm. Just, ha- just... Hashtag white people don't have rhythm, <laughs> exactly. right? I mean, like that's a thing. Exactly, yeah. and then but are, for some reason sometimes like almost like it's a challenge committed to showing that right. they can do it. Anyway, um, I but but I grew up. I grew up fascinated with with um, Christianity in particular, but I grew up fascinated with with the the uh, studies or approach to God. It never struck me to take it take it literally, but mm-hmm. it did strike me as the most, especially as I look back in history, the most meaningful way to talk about the most meaningful framework to talk about some of the things that you're yeah, talking about. Yeah. Even though I studied philosophy, yep. which is an alienating way of talking about things sometimes. I mean I studied both both <laughs> brands sure. you know, both ways. So I think they're quite compatible. Tell so tell me about that and tell me about how how and why you landed on theology as as one of your buckets for for how to discuss these things. Yeah. So I mean it goes back to um, I think high school, um, I had a near-death experience. I suffered a brain aneurysm when I was 16, um, the like a week before I turned 17 years old. And so, and it was the summer before my senior year in high school. And I, I had been, I'd had this like religious experience and felt very compelled um, in the church that I was going and felt very supported in the youth group and um, felt a sense of call to ministry. That's the mm-hmm. language, right? That's the religious language. And then I had this this brain aneurysm and I almost lost my life and two surgeries to correct it and pupils were fixed and dilated. You know, my heartbeat was like zero over mm-hmm. nothing, you know. And so I had this near-death experience and survived two brain aneurysms, and you wouldn't know that there's anything wrong with me unless you saw my scar. Then you would think it's a design in my hair, and then I would tell you, no, actually, it's a scar. And I started reading theology after that. I started reading some of the Reformed theologians, John Calvin, Martin Luther, and there was something that compelled me about their work. There was a beauty in it. I don't know that I believed in a sort of the certainty of what I was reading, but there was it was poetic to me, and and the poetic reason f- felt very beautiful to me. So I I finished high school and I went off to college and I majored in theology mm. and was in the theology school, and so I have been steeped in this discourse for a long time. But I went to college on a music scholarship, and I thought that what I would be doing would be teaching music or something, right? But I fell in love with philosophy and theology, and so I read the tradition, the -hmm. philosophical tradition and the theological tradition. And and luckily, I had professors who were trained in both, and so they could sort of hold my hand while I walked some of the stuff and whatnot. And, And when I went to grad school... Uh, in Chicago, I started reading Chicana feminist theory. Mm. And so I was recovering the story of my ancestors, really. And so between the philosophy and the theology, there was something about so much philosophy is born of these questions of where do we start? Where do we begin? Mm -hmm. And theology, I felt, had a pragmatic approach to it, not only a belief in something, or an ascent to something, but a way to live. And and that is that is what captured my thoughts. Right. And I think it's I think also philosophy is like that. Philosophy gives us a way to live or the search for wisdom. Right. And then you live out that wisdom in political ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have three degrees in theology and a PhD in constructive philosophical theology. I teach theology and ethics at Duke. Um, and I, I love the discourse um, because I think it it helps us have a frame of how to live in the world. Yeah, yeah. And I think we need that. We need some type of container to help us live in the shithole of a world that we've created. Yeah, and and I mean it's in, it's interesting that you put that is that it's like philosophy is the is often the like framework for like asking the questions. And then like theology is sort of like it's going like okay we have a thing like how do we engage with yeah. the thing. 
Do, do you, and now you're writing a book. You've written a book. I've written a book. You're, you're recording an, uh, the audio book. Re- recording the audio book. <laughs> tell me about the, tell me about like how that happened and why that happened. Yeah. So, uh, funny story. Um, Fortress Press reached out to me. Fortress is a, as, as a Lutheran, um, mm-hmm. Lutheran press and I'm not Lutheran, mm-hmm. um, but they reached out to me right after I finished my PhD, and they said, hey, we love your work. Are you working on anything? I'm like, yeah, actually, I'm working on, like, revolution and becoming and sort of a theology of revolution. And they're like, great. We, we'd, here, here's a contract. We, we write that book. Wow. I'm like, okay, okay. And it was like my first experience. I mean, okay, I'll, I'll write that book. So for the next three years, I wrote this book, mm-hmm. turned in the draft um, last December, and they said— we love what you do, but this is not the book that we want. Mm. We want something that is more readable. You can't have 14-syllable words <laughs> in a book. I'm like, okay, well. So I I was paired with an editor. His name is Paul Lutter, and he is a Lutheran pastor and um, a very generous, kind, compassionate man. And there and – there, there was just a lot of healing that happened when I started working with Paul. And Paul said, what kind of book do you want to write? And I said, well, I want to write a book about activist theology. And I thought that I was doing that. And he was like, okay, well, how do you want to do that? And it, he was so gentle with me on our first conversation. And I said, well, I mean, I guess one of the ways that I could do this is just by telling story. He was like, so why don't, you, why, don't, why don't you just try telling a few stories and then send it back to me? And so what I did all last year was revise the entire manuscript from high theory to storytelling. Hmm. And it has original poetry in it by my poet comrade Rebel. And it's now 200 pages of storytelling about – the moral questions I, I held in my heart, like why my dad hired undocumented workers, mm-hmm. why my dad never talked about immigration policies, why my dad um, couldn't imagine how I could see what he was doing as modern-day slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk about all these. I spill the family tea. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk about the real difficulty of learning that my paternal grandfather um went and watched lynchings of black people. And so I I talk about all this and I talk about sort of um, how I growing up had a moral compass and I found that my moral compass was best lived out in church, even though the church couldn't hold my complexity. So it's a church of, I mean, church, it's a, it's a book of storytelling about my sort of coming to be an activist and a theologian and the book is called Activist Theology. Is it? Is it? Um, I don't mean to be too reductionist here, but like, is it stories that you're telling your teenage self <laughs> to be like, "Here's how you got here." <laughs> I mean, that's a that's a great way to think about it. Um, it it's it's that, and it's also reviving memory, mm. so that I know what to do next. Right. 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 That I held the wisdom like I embodied the wisdom like I knew that I knew that the shit was wrong that my dad mm-hmm. was doing, but I didn't have the language. Mm-hmm. And so I give language to that memory yeah. and I give a critical analysis to that memory so that if other people are encountering this, then they might be able to have an analysis about what's happening in the world. I also talk about having been in Charlottesville as a counter protester mm-hmm. um, and talk about what it means to swim in the sea of white supremacy, um, what it means to move home to the South, to recover my roots. So really it is a sort of existential memoir Mm -hmm. um, with a theological undertone. My favorite, I mean, my favorite people I feel like are, are queer or broken and I don't mean these to be in the same basket, but queer or broken pursuits of theology, yeah. people who are in that process. Yeah. Because my, yeah. so my, do you know this guy, Broderick Greer? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Broderick is a dear friend of mine. Oh, no yes. shit. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. Love. Just Hi, Broderick. Love. Yes. Oh, my God. That's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And then Lindsay Cranks, who I interviewed earlier. Yes. Lindsay who, is also a dear friend of mine. Oh we just texted God. this morning. Cool. Yeah. She's like hearing 
I mean, it's funny because, like, having talked to her, like, she talked to me about her journey from, like, 2003 on, you know, being from South Carolina. Yeah. um, looking around at everyone who's doing mission and like leaving, and she was like, it seems like there's a lot that needs to be done in yeah. her backyard. Um, and then also just like, it seems like she's perpetually in a way that I think I just dismissed my own journey for 20, you know, maybe 20 years, perpetually trying to find out what her relationship is with belief or the the, the structures in which we, how we talk about right. belief. Right. Um, which are the, contrived, right? Right, totally. I mean, but she does like, She's inspiring, like you're inspiring in the ways that 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 you have discussed, and Broderick's inspiring in the ways Absolutely. that he has. But and then and then she, when I think about the fact that her relationship with God is like literally getting into the street and disrupting yep. like structural um, uh, inequality yep. is, to to whatever level she can practically. Yep. I'm like. You know, I'm like, I wish these were my experiences with with uh, uh, belief when I was a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and I just want to say, just to give a shout out to Lindsay, who will be speaking at the book launch event mm, great. on September 29th. I don't know when this will air, but this will, this will come up before September 29th. So. so Lindsay will be speaking at the book launch, book launch event at White Avenue Studio on September 29th. Everyone should come. Lindsay does amazing work. Um, when I think about someone who is doing activist theology, I think about Lindsay. Mm. Lindsay is doing activist theology. She is pairing critical analysis with theological thought and social practices. Yeah. Do you get discouraged? I wake up every morning. <laughs> and I and when I wake up, I wonder what's the what, what's the shitstorm that I'm going to face today? Yeah, I mean I'm human and I have feelings and I have emotions. Um I feel like I feel like the recent ice raids the recent mass shootings, um, I feel not just discouragement, but I feel this like existential despair Mm -hmm. of we are not going to survive ourselves. Mm -hmm. So it makes me want to cook meals for people. It makes me want to have people over at my house. It makes me want to love people um, better than I can love others. You know, Um, it makes me want to do stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But but, but yeah, I mean, we, we're living in a shithole yeah. that we've created and we actually don't know how to undo it. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Because we don't know what kind of people we want to be. Yeah. 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 That's a, uh, that's an amazing, that's like, that, I feel like that should be the question at the beginning of the news. Every time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Before we dive in, <laughs> what kind of people? Just remember to right, ask yourself, right, what kind of right. person do you? Before you be? get that cup of coffee, <laughs> what kind of person do you want to be? Yeah, I mean, we need to be asking ourselves these critical questions mm. be, because it directly relates to how we live our life, right? So, if I could figure out the type of human I want to be, then I can live my politics with integrity. Yeah. Do you? Do you? How do you find Nashville? In that, in 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 that struggle, in the in the fight, like what is it like to be here, knowing that you were, you were in California, and then you decided to return to the South as home. Yeah. What? How have you found it? I mean, I love Nashville, but there's also multiple Nashvilles, right? Mm. There's like immigrant Nashville, there's old Nashville, there's new Nashville, there's Music City Nashville. Um, and, you know, because I'm on the road a lot speaking and, and whatnot, um, when I'm home, I love to be home. Mm-hmm. And I love to go out on my patio and just feel the humidity. Mm-hmm. And I love to be out in the fray with people, um, getting coffee or a craft brew, you know, or going to Attaboy mm-hmm. to see the guys there. It, it has been—Nashville has been amazing to me. Yeah. And— I don't want to leave. Yeah. I want to be, I want to help be part of the change that Nashville is trying to become. Mm. I think, yeah, that's, that's, and it feels like there's an opportunity. Yeah. I think that if we can figure out the kind of humanity that we want to be, then there's opportunity. But we can't create the conditions of opportunity without really analyzing what kind of people we want to be. Right. We have to do that deep work. That's heart work. That's body work. That's mind work. Um, and we've got to get in touch with our gut. Yeah. You know? I think that's why I was always confused about any 
approach to theology that took anything literally. Mm-hmm. Because to take something literally, especially like a like a, a present and existing legal structure, to like yeah. honor that before anything else suggests that we've nailed the answers to the questions already. Right. And we just now just need to keep things moving forward. Which is a very arrogant way to think about things, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 Well, I thank you for everything you're doing, and I'm so excited for you and this book. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is fantastic. Thank you. Hopefully, hopefully, you know, today, after people listen, they'll be asking themselves the important question. I hope so. Awesome. I hope so. Thanks, Rob. Thanks. All right, everybody, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Nashville Demystified. Thank you to Jesse LaFontaine for all things related to sound post-production. Hey, each episode has a show-specific illustration provided by my longtime friend, Tim Burns. They are plenty great, so check out the site to see them. Check out social media, etc., the various places where we put these things. Follow us on all of the places where following is allowed. Subscribe and do all that. We have a ton of great interviews coming up. It's actually borderline criminal how good things are going to be in the next couple of weeks. Stay tuned, won't you?